The following is our extended conversation with Dr. Joy Oslin. We talk teamwork, complex instruction, and equity. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. So we'd like to welcome you, Joy. Thanks for joining us on the Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast. Uh, focus today is teamwork. Are you familiar with the show? It has been a while since I've watched um, through the first two seasons, but we loved it. There, I mean, there's so it made it made me realize that there are so few shows like that. That like yes. you leave, like you like the people. They're all making an effort, right? Yeah. Even the yeah. sort of villains if you would say mm -hmm. there are any become likable and human yeah. and the, the you know quote unquote good guys are flawed <laughs> right but good things and sad things are happening yeah it definitely makes it a very enjoyable watch so as you're thinking about the show and thinking about our theme so what are some elements of teamwork and collaboration that stick out to you on the show? I, I see it. You see it everywhere, right? From the way the coaches work together, the way they bring in um, the bottle boy. I, I can't remember. They right. call him the key boy, yeah. maybe, right? Yeah. Because he's got good ideas and not just coaches have good ideas. The way they ask the players and involve the players. And there's a lot to think about between... The administrators, even though some of those uh, relationships seem, uh, you know, are definitely problematic in many ways. Nobody, nobody can run a team all on their own, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it has to happen uh, with a lot of people together. And there are a lot of opportunities in Ted Lasso to think about how that happens in good or problematic ways or most often ways that are a little bit of both. <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the show, we do uh, sometimes a silly thing that's taken from the show. Ted comes up with odd questions. Right. So one he springs on people is first concert, best concert. This might be the hardest question you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up, as did Dave, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is fairly remote. Our opportunities for concerts were pretty limited. So the concerts you saw were whoever happened to come <laughs> to the UP that time. And so I think most people might look at this and think about rock concerts or big venues, but um, this immediately brought to mind a memory that I have. So there is a uh, an auditorium attached to a school in Marquette, the Kaufman Auditorium. They had a series of concerts. Uh, I was a kid and my mom bought season tickets and they were on school nights, I think they were on Sunday nights. And so we went to a ballet and we went to a symphony. Of course, it finished past your bedtime and we stopped on the way home at Big Boy to get that dessert. <laughs> so those are my first memories of concerts. And to be honest, my favorite concerts are small, sort of intimate house concerts. I have a lot of friends who are musicians. And so I love to do that. I, I did get to see U2 when they were at Spartan Stadium. And that was a pretty impressive experience. That's one of the few big, you know, rock concerts that I've been to. And it was beautiful night outside and an impressive spectacle and good music. So that might be one of the more memorable ones. But I also love, love, love concerts 
where kids are making music. You know, my kids were involved in band and elementary school, choral concerts and band later on in high school and middle school. And that makes me happy to be at a a children's concert. That's very good. Those aren't for everybody. No. (laughs) Well, and thanks, Joy, for pointing out. So uh, when I get asked this question, I'm always a little little uncomfortable because my first concert, I do think, was a big rock concert, but it was at Lakeview Arena in Marquette. It was Ted Nugent. And there's part of me that wishes I could go back and tell my 14-year-old self maybe to rethink that. (laughs) <laughs> if I had to answer this question, yeah. what about you, John? What was your first concert? My dad like was an amateur drummer, so we went to stuff like my whole life. Uh, my first concert that was just like me with my friends by myself was ELO with uh, Hall Notes opening. So, um, pretty good, pretty good show. Well, you were yeah. in Detroit, right? So you had a lot more choices than than we did. Yeah, we had <laughs> like I'm from a little town between Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Toledo. So there were lots of amazing yeah. options. And what was your best? Uh, it's interesting, especially with the theme of the show. Um, it's so hard to pick, right? Because it, for me, I think it kind of involves like with whom I went, mm-hmm. right? So like I treasure those memories of going with my father to jazz and blues. Uh, there was a Carmen McRae concert. I remember that was amazing. Going with my brother to Peter Gabriel or um, uh, something like that. Or um, more recently, you know, getting to go to Janelle Monet with my daughter. It's it's the people who make the concert special. Joy's made me rethink mine. In fact, originally I would stick to the Lumineers when they played here in Grand Rapids. There, it was an amazing show, lots of energy, and we had fantastic seats. But when she was talking, it reminded me of a recent house concert that we had at our own house, Joshua Davis, for our 25th anniversary played. Friend of the podcast, the the music uh, comes from Joshua Davis. But after the break, our grandkids just picked up his instrument and he was so gracious that he let them just play. And it was just fun. And uh, yeah, it is the people and it is that... uh, that opportunity to to be in fellowship. So yeah, I, I like that you're thinking about John this in terms of of teamwork. Speaking of teamwork, Joy, you wrote the book Smarter Together as part of a team. So what was that like? Well, there were six of us, and we have a motto uh, which we learned from Lisa Jilk, which is that no one of us alone is as smart as all of us together. And you definitely have to believe that and value collaboration to write a book with six people. It started when um, four of us were graduate students at MSU and two of us were professors there. And Lisa Jilk, who's one of the book authors, she was a grad student with us. She introduced us to complex instruction, which she had learned because of her work at Railside School. That's a pseudonym, but it's um, a school that Joe Bowler writes about quite a bit. She had been a part of the team at Railside School that used complex instruction to detrack um, the the math courses there. We were studying math for social justice. There hadn't been a lot written about that at that point in the sort of mainstream math ed literature. And there was not a class for us for that. So we all decided, 13 of us decided to do a, uh, an independent study on social justice in mathematics. And as we would encounter problems and things we wanted to think about, Lisa would say, well, complex instruction addresses that. So complex instruction is a set of principles and practices for using group work to promote both equity and 
rigor simultaneously. And so after a while, we started to say, well, what is this complex instruction that addresses so many of these problems we're interested in? So a lot of people did a lot of organizing and Lisa did a week-long workshop that was attended by all of us and um, many elementary teachers in the Lansing area who were part of our cooperative teachers at, of many of our interns. We had some folks from out of town come to participate. So Lisa put us through a, sort of a week of, of complex instruction boot camp. The work at that point in complex instruction had been done mostly in elementary science and social studies and in secondary math. But we had many, many elementary teachers and all of us um, except Lisa focus on elementary. So what we did after that, everybody was excited. Um, many of the teachers were ready to run right out and take this up. And so we followed them and we found out how they were adapting things to make them work in elementary, the things, um, elementary context, the things they were inventing, the ways they were taking up those principles. Three of us ended up writing our dissertations. Um, I wrote mine on teachers learning to use complex instruction. Others were written on students learning in those classrooms. And um, we all took it up in our, our pre-service teacher prep courses. And then after we had done all this work, we came back together and said, we need to put this all together in a book. Teachers had been asking us for that. Also saying, you know, we had this great week, but there was so much packed in. How do we we need one place where we can remember, you know, everything we've been doing. And so what we did was um, Helen Featherstone and Sandra Crespo took the lead. Helen is not living anymore, but was a huge organizer of all of us getting us together. Once we had an outline, uh, we decided who was drafting what sections and Helen did all of the collecting. This was before Google Docs was widely usable. So it was a lot of collecting from people and compiling and sending things back out. There are challenges, of course, to writing a book with six people, but we also agreed that studying collaboration individually <laughs> was an oxymoron and that it just didn't seem, it didn't seem right, you know, to us. And of course, some of us have had to, not had to, but many of us also solo author things, but that at its heart, we are doing this together as a team, even still. But there are some barriers to writing a book with six people, one of which was that we weren't allowed to put six names on the cover. Uh, they wanted to put Helen and Sandra's name on the cover, and they said, no, we, it's all or none. One of the norms for complex instruction is all, often everyone sticks together, and we didn't want to break those norms by ha highlighting certain authors by putting two on the cover. So, you know, it was a lot of work and some heart heartache and sweat and tears, but it's a better book because we all contributed. And it's evident in the writing too, right? That the teachers that you worked with are also part of the team, yeah. right? Part Absolutely. of the teamwork. And, th and that comes through and it goes back to, as you were describing the show, sort of these this idea of a whole character collaboration doesn't necessarily in teamwork doesn't necessarily mean everything goes great right mm -hmm. i mean there there's lots that's going on there and so i appreciate your your willingness to kind of to take us through that part of the journey as you wrote the book well and it makes me think um so i was doing a math camp some years ago and i had students write zines about their experience at the math camp 
and there was a whole zine about arguments mm. <laughs> and not the mathematical argument kind, right? But mm-hmm. arguments that happen when you're working together, um, the kids were writing about. And I remember they said the best argument is when no one is screaming and you get to a solution. But a good argument is if you get to a solution, no matter whether somebody is screaming, right? So <laughs> it is not without its challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think we see students who resist collaboration because they don't want that aspect. Exactly. They know it will be easier in some respects by themselves. And there are many things we can do to make it a better (laughs) experience. It happened uh, yesterday in my pre-service teacher preparation class. There There were some disagreements about how to go forward on a task. And, you know, it takes making the time to step back and say, all right, let's talk about what's happening here. What's the argument about? How do people feel? What's the challenge? And, you know, what are the possibilities? Those kinds of conversations become pretty necessary when you're teaching people how to do math in groups. Even people who are really good at being together in groups don't necessarily know what it means to do mathematics in groups. And that's the subject, of course, that I teach. So um, it takes a lot to get everybody thinking about what, what that involves how to move forward when things are stuck or there are disagreements. So what what does effective collaboration look like either in mathematics or among learners or among teachers or between teachers and learners? And we can think about it at all of those levels. Uh, Most of what's been written about group work and education, it talks about students in classrooms, right? Um, But I think once once you learn them, the ideas apply just as much to groups of teachers. But I would say that effective collaboration, what it looks like is that um, it's what happens when everyone is participating and everyone is seen and treated as people who have something to offer and something to learn. Even when those arguments are happening, there's a sense in which the ideas are important enough to, uh, for us to, to come to try to come to some consensus here. And that, um, everybody's got something to offer to that um, to that discussion, and nobody's nobody's ideas are just being dismissed, right? I mean, that's part of it. We could have we could have group work that looks really nice and pretty and smooth, but people aren't actually engaging in each other's ideas. That engagement, that piece, um, that assumption that everybody's got important ideas here. And not everybody's ideas are great, <laughs> right? So we're gonna get all the ideas on the table. And it's okay if I have a bad idea and I know that I have a good idea and so do you and so do you. You know, we've all seen the big problem when collaboration is not going well, especially all teachers have have seen it where, you know, one or two students are are doing all the intellectual heavy lifting, making all the decisions. And another couple of students are not. And I've heard publications refer to this as, you know, hitchhikers, right? Folks kind of hanging hanging on in the group. And so we're all familiar with that big problem of group work being unequal participation. And that's what complex instruction addresses. Um, There are lots of kinds of group work and, you know, collaboration and um, complex instruction is one that deals, uh, it's, it's particular to group work that deals with issues of status. So status is a ranking system where everyone knows it's better to have a higher rank and it's based on perceptions of competence and who's going to be the best at the group task 
And we all have ideas about what competence looks like. And we're constantly making judgments about our competence in relationship to other people's competence. And especially in math, where many people have been seen as not math people, right? Where we have sort of this idea that there are math people and not math people that persists despite many of us trying to get rid of that idea. Status becomes really an important thing to look at. And status is what causes unequal participation um, because the people who are expected to be more competent participate more and then they look even more competent. And so they get even more opportunities to participate and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And often as teachers, we see students who aren't participating and we think this is a discipline issue involving the under participators. Um, but it's usually much more complicated than that. And often the there are over participators who are not allowing others access to the materials or to the ideas. And again, it, it, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less you participate, the less others see you as competent, the less people ask for your, your ideas. What you all wrote in the book really was powerful to me in terms of reframing the way of thinking about what's going on in group work, right? That instead of using you know, that idea of a hitchhiker, that these folks are just trying to go along for the ride, you know, there's more of that that sort of sense of status and belonging. It really has me rethinking some of the ways and some of the things that I do in my own classroom in, in terms of to support a more equal status. So mm -hmm. I really appreciated those, the stories that you put that, that put those hitchhikers, right. I'm using air quotes there, into a context. It made me rethink a lot of things. So I have criteria that I use, a, a participation rubric where people can sort of check have they been doing their homework, you know. And I realized early in this process that it was really privileging the over participators, mm -hmm. right? And that there was no place where we said, we're going to reward the person who steps back and asks the group for their ideas. Those kinds of things had never shown up in many of the things that you find about, about participation and grading or evaluating participation. Uh, it's important to think about that because everything that we do in the classroom either perpetuates status or disrupts it. Most of the time, we haven't thought about how we are perpetuating status. And, you know, 10 years into this work, I'm still discovering ways that I'm perpetuating status in my own classroom. The important part is to always be looking for those and always to be tracing when I see unequal participation in my classroom, sort of tracing it back and thinking, what am I doing to either disrupt or perpetuate what's happening there? Yeah, even being conscious of it doesn't necessarily make me as the teacher better about kind of interacting. Uh, there was a question in Casilla uh, uh, Omohundro's Wedekind's uh, Math Exchanges book about like, um, or maybe it's from her hands-down conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm forgetting her collaborator, which is terrible. Dave, do you remember? It's Christy <laughs> Herman Thompson. Oh, thank you. Uh, she makes a kind of the class responsibility for who's speaking, who isn't, and why. It's important to remember that status is dynamic and that we not start labeling students mm -hmm. as high status and low status and making those fixed sort of identities. People can be perceived to have different status in different contexts, 
And even in the same math classroom, among different tasks, different people might be perceived to have different levels of competence. Although something we do see in elementary school is that often status is conferred by the reading group. I asked my daughter, I had her at a meeting with uh, among some of the authors of the book at one point in time, I think she was in first grade. And I said, who's smart in math in your class? And she named a couple of students. And I said, well, how do you know they're smart in math? And she said, well, they read chapter books. I said, well, what about math? And and she said, I just told you, <laughs> right? <laughs> they read chapter books. There are ways that status can kind of hang with a person uh, across context, but it's dynamic. And the good news about that is that there are research-tested interventions that teachers can use to disrupt status. Do you want to share one of those interventions? Like, like what might be one that somebody tr could try? There are ways to disrupt status through every step of the process, from choosing and adapting tasks that require multiple abilities so that you might broaden who has a chance to be perceived as more competent. But the two uh, main interventions, one is called a multiple abilities orientation. So when I'm giving a group worthy task, uh, I will often start it by giving a big long list of abilities that could be used for the task. And then you have to explicitly say, no one person in the group has all of these abilities and everybody has some of them. So you're really going to need to rely on your group. Another one is assigning competence. So that involves uh, a lot of careful watching of students to see what they're doing, um, providing a lot of opportunities for showing competence um, through a broad array of, uh, you know, a multiple abilities task that requires many abilities noticing the subtle moves that they might be making that their group might not be noticing, mm -hmm. and then very intentionally making those public for the group. Um, it's not just an intervention for the student who's under-participating. It's, it's primarily an intervention um, for, about making everybody else notice the ability that that student has. The thing to remember, I think, is that they all work together. In order for those two interventions to even be possible, you have to be working on a task that requ that actually requires many different abilities. So I tell folks, whether or not you're going to do a multiple abilities orientation with a task, you should always sit down and list the abilities it requires. And if you can't come up with more than five, it might not be a task to do with a group. And that's okay. We don't have to do every task with a group, right? Mm -hmm. But we want to make sure that when we give a task and ask students to work in groups, that it's actually a task that requires a group. Otherwise, it will perpetuate that idea that one one person can take take over the the task for everybody. If you don't have this off the top of your head, that's totally okay. But if you wanted to share a recent task you've used and some of the abilities that you named in it, so this is the perfect day to ask me this because yesterday we did a, a task, or this week we did a task with pre-service teachers. It's the origami boxes task. Mm. And I got this from the folks at Railside School. They use it with teachers when they are, are teaching folks how to use complex instruction. The task requires making four origami boxes out of four different sizes of paper using diagrams. So they get a di diagram sheet to use to make the boxes. 
And then uh, you give each group a very small number of centimeter cubes and a very small number of beans. And they are measuring the volume of the boxes with beans and cubes. They don't have enough. This is very purposeful. They don't have enough to fill up the box, right? They don't, they do have enough to measure the side of the smaller boxes, but then they have to use each other's boxes to measure. It has a lot of possibility because some groups may get through estimating the volume of the boxes and some groups may get all the way through figuring out what's the formula of box N, a size N. So there's a very broad range. Everybody's involved in problem solving and some groups, you know, may end sort of at different places and they all have wonderful things to talk about. But some of the abilities that requires, uh, th then they're required to create a report that's a standalone report that that demonstrates at least one of their counting strategies and at least one of their predicting strategies. So it involves, the materials are very purposeful. There are four boxes. We've got a group of four folks doing it, right? Everybody gets a box. The abilities might include reading diagrams, visualizing how things are going to look once you make certain folds, communicating in the report. Clearly, the explanations might involve color, words, symbols, drawings. They might make connections showing lines. Depending on their choices, they may make graphs or charts um, to show predictions. Changing their minds is a, an ability I point out to them because they often end up having to revise or change their mind. Listening to each other. Um, because I will give them one copy of the directions. And so somebody's always explaining the diagrams, explaining the directions. So that involves a lot of listening. What is also lovely about it is that while there's a lot of very traditional math content that students could get to, finding formulas, doing that sort of thing, it also involves a lot of abilities that haven't that don't usually get privileged um, in a traditional math class. And so it opens up opportunities for people who come in not seeing themselves as math people to be the one who has the ability. I was listening to groups, of course, as we were doing that this week. And I heard one student say to another, who's good at origamis, right? And that's the kind of thing I want them asking each other. What do you have to contribute here? And there are opportunities for people who have, are good at calculating and do the math in their head and have speed, right, to be, you know, multiplying length and width. And, you know, I mean, so there are lots of abilities that are more the ones that often get privileged in math and then many that that aren't often, often privileged. Using mathematical language, it's an extremely rich task. Um, and it was a lot of fun this time as it always is, but I had a student email me late at night, the night that we did it, saying, I think I know the formula. Is this it? Right. <laughs> um, which I did not require any of them to get to the formula. And it's exciting for a lot of people, I think. I will often, on a more sort of uh, regular basis, adapt tasks so that they're group worthy. They don't all require that many materials and that much complicated work. I will often, if I want them, for example, to be thinking about how, if I want them to be thinking about different strategies students might use for subtraction, for example, 
this semester, I did one where the group had to create a, a poster that had four different strategies for solving a subtraction problem. And then they had to look for connections between the strategies. And then after they had done the task, I asked them, let's start coming up with connecting questions. So if you're leading a discussion with students and you have these four strategies among the classroom, how are you going to engage students in talking about these strategies and the ways they're connected um, so that you can build that um, rich connected knowledge with them? And so that you know, doesn't require lots of blocks or beans. Um, but again, it still requires multiple abilities. It still requires um, making connections, showing connections. They might use color. They might use lines. They might use symbols. They might use words. Hopefully gets um, everybody has an ability that they can that they can then use for a task like that. More people for sure will have something to offer. Yeah. That, that has me thinking about the five practices and particularly when we get to anticipating student responses. I'm now thinking about asking when my pre-service teachers do that to think about those abilities, right? So making sure that a variety of abilities are showing up in those responses so that, and again, if they can't come up with a variety of abilities, back to your point, Joy, then maybe the task isn't the group-worthy task that we want to do in one of our centers. So I really appreciate that. That's 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 helpful to think about it in those terms. And it's very complicated, isn't it, to learn how to anticipate what students might do mm -hmm. and then not only anticipate what they're doing, but how do I connect that back to the big ideas that I want them to learn and how do I help them see what's happening in each other's strategies? That, that requires looking at math in a, in a different way way than they than they often have before. So how does the this kind of awareness of status or these interventions or the complex instruction address equity? So one thing I I want to say about that is uh, of course as as we've mentioned status interferes with equal opportunities to learn, but status is often aligned with different social markers, we status markers, right? Which might be race, gender, language, income level, and we see those play out on a larger societal scale, but they're also impacting our perceptions of competence in classrooms. So that's definitely one way that uh, collaboration has to do with equity. But another is really interesting. So I think, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that as we were studying math for social justice, Lisa would be saying, well, complex instruction gets at that. Complex instruction gets at that. In our opening day math department meeting, we looked at a list of uh, principles for equity focused teaching. It was a really long list, maybe 50 plus principles. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were, were saying, gosh, that's a lot. How do I, how do I get started? Well, I went through it today and realized that complex instruction addresses at least a third of those. It really has brought together a number of principles that we know are equity focused teaching principles and sort of built a a whole, right, out of those pieces. Um, it provides a framework that sometimes explicitly addresses many of those equity-focused teaching principles. There are things like academic belonging, using multiple representations and requiring multiple abilities. So a lot of the principles and practices of complex instruction uh, are recognized elsewhere, even as, as equity-focused principles. You and I were talking to another colleague about 
this idea of collaboration in elementary classrooms and that teachers were finding it difficult to support what they were calling group work. What have you seen as being some of those barriers that get in the way of teachers mm -hmm. implementing teamwork, collaboration, group work in their classroom? Well, I think, of course, there always are the barriers of time. District pacing guides might um, bring a sense of urgency. You might feel like, you know, when do I have time to teach group work? Sometimes the need to focus a particular curriculum that might be he heavily focused on individualism. I think those are challenges to innovating your practice or, you know, taking on new practices all, always. But I think the biggest, one of the biggest barriers is narrow conceptions of what it means to be capable in mathematics. If the focus is only on calculating and speed, then only a few people are, are going to be considered competent. So broadening our ideas so that math competency includes things like communicating, designing, listening, showing connections, creating. This opens up space for everyone to learn that everyone has something to offer and something to learn. And another big barrier is not knowing how to address status issues. Watching and seeing a group that doesn't work as a group and and not having interventions um, for dealing with that can often get in the way of group work. I will hear teachers sometimes say, you know, I tried it and I'm worried about this unequal participation. And the interventions are extremely effective, but they're not magic bullets and they don't happen quickly. We have to teach students what it means to do group work, what it means to work equitably, what it means to do group, what it means to do math together. Many of them might not have experienced that before. Having interventions and support for addressing status is often a, a huge barrier. Well, and you mentioned in the book the importance of norms and procedures that are associated with, with complex Absolutely. instructions. So complex instruction has um, ways to address those, those barriers at every level. From designing or finding or adapting tasks so that they're group worthy and require multiple abilities to using roles and norms, which in CI are different than I've seen in some other versions of collaborative learning, because in complex instruction, those roles and norms have to be particularly designed to address status by engaging students in the content of the lesson. So if the resource monitor, for example, which might be a role, is only responsible for gathering materials and picking them up, that would not involve them necessarily in, they could do that role without being involved in the mathematics of a task. But we have the resource monitor also be in charge of the group's questions. And in that way, the resource monitor at the very, very least has to know what questions the group has and be involved in the mathematics of the task to the extent that is required by that. So it's a different way of thinking about roles than simply getting the logistics handled, getting the materials passed, although they do those things. Having status interventions that we talked about, assigning competence and multiple abilities are important to getting over the bar that barrier of status. And it also involves thinking really hard about the material materials we use and how, how we want students to work in a group. Um, do I want students to go around in the group in a circle and each give ideas? Do I want them to each have a piece of the puzzle or piece of the problem or a clue that that is required for the group to solve the task? 
what materials will promote equal participation. For example, when I give written instructions on a task card, I give two task cards to a group of four. I learned this again from Lisa Jilk. And the reason is because if I give four sets of instructions, everybody can go their own way. And if I give one, not everybody can see it, right? But if you give two task cards to a group of four, uh, everybody can see the, the instructions and nobody can go off on their own. So it it provides um, a structure for thinking about how each piece of the puzzle is going to uh, either promote students working in groups or or allow them to 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 go off and work on their own. The point is to be constantly teaching students and ourselves that everyone in the room has something to learn and something to offer. That it's not about who's the smart one, but how are we all getting smarter together? The word smart can be controversial, but we decided early in our work that if students are going to use it, we're going to have to teach them a new meaning for it. Thus the the motto um, that Lisa brought to us, which is no one of us alone is as smart as all of us together. I really like how what you just said about it's not even that we are smarter together, but that's how we're we are getting smarter yes. together. Exactly. Um, that that kind of active positioning of it. Well, and that collaboration is a, is a kind of smart as well, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to work in teams is 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 part of, you know, when we're thinking about abilities, that's that's certainly a skill that we can we can build on and that we can build up. Exactly. You mentioned earlier, and it's in your book um, early on, that complex instruction, so we're focusing here, the three of us particularly, right? We're in the math department, mm-hmm. and we we tend to think about that. Um, but you mentioned, and we're hoping that our uh, podcast has a larger audience. So you're talking about that this can also apply to other subject areas. Absolutely. The video that I mentioned, the video about status that will be in the, uh, that you'll link to in the resources, has lots of examples of science and social studies. And uh, there are lots of other examples of, of it being used in science and social studies. When we started to try to recruit, you know, teachers to work on it in math, it was sometimes hard to find um, because there's often an impression that group work's good for all the other subjects, but not math, (laughs) right? Um, That math, you know, takes something else. So, you know, we've had to work to disrupt that idea. It's absolutely relevant to all the subject areas. I think, I think math is, is sometimes the place where people find it the hardest or the hardest before they're doing it to get, to wrap their head around how mathematics is a collaborative activity, which it is. Um, historically and, you know, in the way that mathematicians work, but our ideas of school mathematics are often more narrow. And also in the resources, we'll link to a book by uh, Elizabeth Cohen and Rachel Lotan, and that is not mathematics focused. That's focused uh, just on teaching in general across all subject areas. So listeners to this podcast who are not in in mathematics can start there um, with that book. As, as we're thinking about barriers, what happens when the kid who's been winning around the world for, for three years straight is no longer top dog, so to speak. But, so. Well, and just and just in short, 
I would say that student has a lot to learn too. And I, I was that kid at some point. I think many of us who are teachers were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're used to being good at school. You know, it's hard sometimes to understand folks who don't want to participate because many of us were over participators. Are there other resources you'd like to share with us that uh, you haven't had a chance to mention so far? We've been talking about the book Smarter Together, um, which is focused on collaboration in elementary math. There is a secondary version or a partner book by NCTM uh, put out by NCTM, which is Strength in Numbers by Lonnie Horn. There is, as I mentioned, the book Mathematics for Equity, which is a fabulous book that tells the story of Rail Side School by folks who were there. One of the most important books, I think, is Designing Group Work by Elizabeth Cohen and Rachel Lotan. That is sort of the resource on collaboration in in classrooms. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I haven't ever read that. I'm kind of putting it back on my list. There is a fabulous source of tasks that came out of Berkeley in the 90s, which are collaborative logic activities that in are um, involve mathematics content. The books are Get It Together, United We Solve, uh, Group Solutions, and Group Solutions 2. They're often good ways in for folks who haven't used complex instruction before because they provide a structure for providing different clues to everybody in the group. So whether you, it's a clue toward what's the mystery number or What's the mystery map? What's the mystery shape? Lots of opportunity to get kids talking in a way where each one has one clue that they have to offer. Of course, there are lots of sources of tasks that can be available to be adapted for group worthy, to be group worthy tasks. Some of the ones we've had a lot of success with are um, Marilyn Burns tasks from the collection of math lessons or from many other sources by Marilyn Burns. The MARS tasks, which are balanced assessment tasks, are often very rich and can be made into group-worthy tasks. Many math curriculum documents have, depending on your curriculum, it might have some lessons marked as group work lessons that might be easier to adapt for complex instruction and pay attention to status. If that's the case, there is an appendix in Smarter Together that is focused on how do you adapt a task from your own curriculum. And, and make it group worthy. I often go back to that because I find it helpful when I'm adapting tax, tasks for my context. So, so Joy, yeah. thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate the time that you've given, the thought that you've given to this. We are extremely grateful for you being on the podcast, but we are also extremely grateful for you being a, a part of our team here at Grand Valley. We feel very fortunate to uh, be able to to go forward with you as one of our teammates. I, it's really exciting to me, and it's such an honor to be asked to be on a podcast. I was really, ex- I'm really excited about that. I'm really. Happy to be here and to to do it with the two of you.